Hey, about uh, six months ago or so, uh, Kimberly, is Kimberly here this morning? Oh, hey, there's Kimberly. Kimberly said to me, hey, Peter, did you know Robin Perry is coming to Denver for some conferences and maybe we could con him into speaking or something? You didn't use the word con. But anyway, uh, we, uh, I asked Robin, we emailed Robin, and he said, yeah, I'd love to. So uh, some of you know Robin because Robin was here a couple years ago when we had uh, a conference. Um, the Forgotten Gospel Conference. You may also know Robin because he's authored several books. Wrote one book uh, several years ago that had a huge impact on me called The Evangelical Universalist. Now there's a second edition. Um, he's re recently written two books, one, The Larger Hope, up till Julian of Norwich, and then he's doing another one after J Julian. You what? Ilaria wrote the first one. Okay, but that should be pretty good too, right? Yeah, so anyway. Okay, I lied, so that was a bad introduction. But uh, Robin, uh, more than uh, being a great author great, uh, and a great scholar, uh, Robin's just a wonderful guy and a friend. Robin's from Worcester, England, and uh, is married, has two wonderful daughters. And now he's not just Dr. Robin Perry, he's Reverend Dr. Robin Perry because he's an ordained Anglican pastor. Um, Robin's, uh, it's been hard because we have a lot of elevation here. So Robin, hope we can pray for you. You can say, is it okay if I pray for you now? And then, okay, so come on up here and let's, let's pray. Can you stand for a second if I, if I hold you up? Okay. So Father, thank you so much for Robin. And I thank you for his life. I thank you for the way you're using him. And uh, Lord, I thank you for the way you delight in him and, and he knows it. And Lord, this morning as Robin uh, preaches, I pray that you would remind him of your um, truth and your beauty, your life in him, even as uh, you use him to remind us. We bless Robin and we ask, Lord God, that you would be glorified in all of us as we preach in Jesus' name. Amen. borrowing this from the lady. <laughs> Thank you. If I have to sit there and I'll sit there, it's lovely to be back with you. There's honestly nowhere I would rather be apart from in bed. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, shall we pray? Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Thomas Aquinas, my hero, um, he described humans as rational animals. We are animals, but we're not like other animals. We're animals in the image of God. And for Thomas, the thing that made us really distinctive is that we can use our reason. Um, and I think he's right, but I think what I want to focus on today is something else that's distinctive about humans. That is that we are storytelling animals. As far as you go back in historical records, uh, humans have told stories, myths and legends. And Think about kids. When kids are little, what they love is stories. And when they grow up, they love stories. Even philosophers who specialize in abstract reasoning or mathematicians love stories because we are fundamentally storytelling people. 
And we don't just tell stories, we are stories. That might sound a little bit weird, but think about it for a minute. Our very identities have a story shaped to them. If somebody says to me, well, Robin, who are you? Then I'll start telling them stories, telling them about when I was a little boy and the things I did and the places I lived, the people I met, what happened to me, what happened as I got older, and so on. We have story-shaped identities. It's who I am. I am the person who did such and such. And not just that, my stories are intertwined with other people's stories. My wife, my kids, my friends, and their stories are part of who I am. Who I am is the husband of, I am the husband of, yeah, Carol, she's the wife, I'm the, yeah, got it right. <laughs> not quite there in my head, but you know what I'm saying. Our stories are intertwined then. We have intersecting stories and we have relational identities. And this is one of the things that is the great um, tragedy of Alzheimer's disease. As the memory, it becomes harder and harder to retrieve memories. We lose our sense of self, of who we are, as we forget the things we've done, the people we know. And one of the great kindnesses and great ways we can serve folk who have Alzheimer's is to help them to remember, to tell them the stories about, we remember about them and the stories they told us when they, were, when they could remember, tell them the stories about their childhood and help hold their memories for them. And also entrusting it to God to the point when we know they can't hold their memories at all anymore. God holds their memories and their stories, their identity is held and God will gift it back to them in the resurrection. So before we are creatures, sorry, we are creatures with narrative identities. Who we are is revealed in the stories about us. And this is of course dynamic, it's, it's ongoing as more stories are added to us. And as time goes on, we look back at some of the earlier stories and they take on new meanings. And it's not simply us as individuals, us as institutions, the sanctuary has uh, stories it could tell about itself. It is made up by its stories, and so are nations. Today is the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War, which was a cataclysmic and devastating experience, not simply for Europe, but wider still, but certainly for my country, Britain, and you can't understand who Britain is today without understanding something of that story, which is part of what makes it what it is. And the place that that story has in British identity changes as time goes on and as we look back and reevaluate the story and what place it has in, in our identity as who we are. I, I hope that makes some kind of sense and I hope it resonates at some level. You know, you, yeah, oh, yeah, I get that. We have this, this sort of story identity. So what I want to talk about today is the gospel because the gospel is first and foremost not a set of principles or four spiritual laws or something, it's a story. In the ancient Roman world, the word gospel had a meaning. When there was a new emperor, this emperor would be announced by messengers going throughout the empire announcing the gospel. And the gospel was, there is a new emperor, there is a new Caesar. This is the Lord, he is the savior, you should bow your knee to him. That was the gospel of the empire. 
And so when the early Christians went around proclaiming the gospel, they were borrowing the language of the empire and they were saying, actually, there is a new Lord of the world. It's not Caesar, it's Jesus. And they would announce this Lord. And they would tell the story of the gospel. Paul preaches a gospel that has a story shape and it demands a response. And the story is very simple, this is it. Jesus, the Messiah, has been crucified, but God raised him from the dead and exalted him as Lord of all. That is the gospel. We tend to think of the gospel as like all the good things that come to us. And those are good news and they are But they're not the gospel as such, they are the results of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has died for us, God has raised him from the dead and exalted him to heaven. That's the gospel, he is the Lord. The response to the gospel that's demanded is acknowledge him as the Lord, bow your knee. And there are consequences of that, we start to share in his resurrection life and so on. So there is all that good stuff. But the gospel is the story. Now. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2 today, so let's read it. It'll come up on the screen. You don't need to look it up. You will know the passage, probably. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sometimes, you know, sometimes we just tend to think, oh yeah, that's another Bible passage and so on, but this is not just another Bible passage. I suggest that for Paul, this is the very heart of his theology. The very heart of his gospel is found in this passage. And what I want to hope to persuade you of today, that this passage is telling the gospel, that the gospel has a shape, and that we can see that shape through uh, lots of passages throughout Paul. So let's have a look at the shape of the story that we see here. Uh, There it is, a nice smiley face at the bottom. And the story goes like this, it has a basic pattern. Christ is in heaven, and then there is a story of descent. In love, Christ humbled himself, surrendered his rights for the sakes of others, even to the point of death. And then there's an ascent, God exalted him. He raised him from the dead, exalted him to heaven, seated at the right hand of God. And then of course we have the, what we might call eschatological fulfillment where every knee bows and every tongue confesses and so on. Now this pattern, the smiley face pattern, permeates Paul's spirituality. It is the story by which he assesses everything to do with the Christian life. And if we can grasp that, then it can become for us the story by which we can start to assess all sorts of everyday, ordinary things in our lives in in terms of the gospel. So, the next slide is a picture. And I've only got one point today. So, if you get confused at any point, just remember this one thing, because this is the only thing I am saying. Everything else is just fluff. 
<laughs> no, sorry, exposition. <laughs> Everything else is exposition. Here is the point. The pattern of Jesus' story, which is the gospel, is the pattern that defines our identity as Christians. That's the point. His story is intended by God to be manifested and represented in our own stories. Or, to put it differently, our lives are to proclaim the gospel, and they proclaim the gospel by telling the story with that same smiley face pattern in them. So everything else I'm gonna to say today is just explaining and illustrating what I mean by that. And hopefully by the end it'll all make sense, it's very simple, and uh, it should make sense, but if it doesn't, just wave a hand and ask a question and I'll try and clarify it. So we'll start at the very beginning. Um, How do we become united to Christ? How is it that our lives are joined with the life of Jesus? And the answer in the New Testament is through baptism. So, baptism sets the pattern for our lives as Christians. It is a gospel sacrament. The story that I've just told you is absolutely embedded in what baptism is and what it means. So, according to Paul, we are baptized into Christ's death, burial, resurrection. And of course, this is what you see in the symbolism of immersion baptism, where someone is buried (laughs) under the water and then raised up uh, in resurrection. But what's happening there is that God, somebody is having their life, and all the stories that make up who they are, and they're saying, my life is now going to be defined by this story of Jesus, this gospel story, the story of death, burial, and resurrection is gonna be the story that defines who I am and the meaning and point and the values of my life and what it's about. That's kind of what baptism is. It's having our story joined with Christ's story, having Christ's story pattern made the pattern for our own lives and our own stories. So it's not just then something we do, you know, oh, I got baptized, now I can move on and forget about it. The whole of our Christian life is learning to live out the meaning of that baptism. What happened to us at the beginning, everything else. There is nothing else that happens in your Christian life apart from that, learning to live out what it means to be baptized. That is it. That's all that the Christian life is. So it casts its shadow then over everything that we do as Christians. And the shadow that it casts is the shadow of that story, the gospel story. And it then hangs over, hangs over us is the wrong word. It stands over us as an exciting invitation to live a life that's patterned after Christ, but also as a challenge, challenging us. Are we doing that? Are we living like baptized lives or not? The story of the Christian life is simply to be a living exegesis of Christ's story. Michael Gorman, who who was the main inspiration behind my thoughts in this talk, um, describes this as cruciformity, which is like the idea of conformity, being conformed to something, but what we're being conformed to is the cross. So he he coins this term cruciformity, and I, I, I really like it. So being baptized is surrendering the right to determine for ourselves what story will define who we are and what our lives are about. When you're baptized, you're giving that right over to Jesus and you're saying, okay, Jesus, you set the pattern for my story. You say what my life's about and what the values that it embodies should be. We're surrendering that right. But that's just really entry into life. That's what it is. 
It's not slavery, it's life. So that's the beginning of the journey, but then we have the other sacrament which we will be uh, celebrating today, Eucharist. Eucharist is also a gospel sacrament. It's the other sacrament that Jesus instituted, baptism and Eucharist, and both of them have that story at their very heart. So in the Eucharist, we take the life of the crucified and risen Lord into our own lives. You know, you drink it, you eat it. I mean, it literally becomes a part of you. As Nietzsche said, you are what you eat. I was pretty sure it was Nietzsche that said that. Um, yeah, and so, that, so you take in the bread and wine and it becomes assimilated into you. It becomes a part of who you are, right? The, and, and, and in the sacrament, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's about that pattern, that gospel. And we take it in and we meet by the Holy Spirit. It's transformative. It's not just doing something symbolic, although it is doing something symbolic. By the power of the Holy Spirit, taking the Eucharist is transformative. And it's transformative because it's conforming our lives to the pattern of that story. Now, sharing the Eucharist together is recognizing that each one of us is equally loved by God. Christ died for each one of us equally and for everybody. So nobody's higher or lower, better or worse. We're all the same. And that's kind of got radical social values in it. In the ancient Roman world, it's a very stratified society, lots of social status and honor and dishonor and, and all of that kind of stuff. It's very important. And meals represented this. And so in meals, the way they would have meals sometimes, the important people would eat together uh, around the table and the slaves and the less important people would be kept outside and they would eat leftovers and so on like this. And it was a way that the meal reinforced social values. And some of the Christians in Corinth were doing this. They were, uh, the richer Christians were pigging out, as we would say in England, uh, eating all the food in the chamber, in the central bit, and the poorer Christians were being kept out. And this was supposed to be a love feast and a Eucharist. And Paul says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating when you do that. You're not discerning the body of the Lord. The body of the Lord is the community. And you are treating it disgracefully as if some people have more honor and less honor. He said, that's not what the Eucharist is about. That's, that is completely the antithesis of what the Eucharist is about. So you dishonor it and you even drink judgment on yourselves when you do that. Um, so when we share the Eucharist, what we are sharing is we're all, we're all equal and equally loved and we honor one another in, in doing it. Well, we're charismatics, aren't we? And one of the dangers of the charismatic movement is it can tend sometimes towards uh, this sort of super-duper power display. Uh, we love all the, the people who do amazing miracles and acts of power and firework displays and all of that stuff. And we're not so comfortable with things that are weak and broken. The problem with this theology is, as Martin Luther says, it's a theology of glory, but without a theology of the cross. And the gospel requires both, because what the Holy Spirit does is he's making the story of the cross and resurrection a reality in our own lives. And unfortunately, it's the cross and the resurrection, not just the resurrection. So Paul, in his letters, exemplifies a different kind of charismatic and work of the Spirit, and he's quite emphatic. 
that what the Spirit does is not simply make a resurrection a reality in our lives, but also sharing in the sufferings of Christ. So the Spirit makes the story of both the cross and the resurrection a paradoxical reality in us, and he does this in two ways. First of all, in the present, the Spirit gives us power, glory, and life in the midst of weakness and suffering. So we feel broken, we feel weak, and Paul was often talking about this, you know, I, I can't, I'm not a great speaker, I don't do amazing acts of power, people keep criticizing him because he just seems so weak and flimsy, and he says, yeah, I am, and I have a really hard time of it, but the power of God is made perfect in weakness. I, he says, I rejoice in my weakness because when I'm weak, then I'm strong because God's power has shown in me resurrection power in the very brokenness of my life. So what we have then is the pattern of cross and resurrection manifest in our lives now in this paradoxical way. But in the future, we have the spirit and the resurrection gives us power, glory, and life after weakness, suffering, and death. So if we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. You know, there is a sense in which at that point then the sufferings will be gone and past, and there will be just resurrection. For now we live in this paradox where the cross and the resurrection sort of intersect in our lives. But in the future, the spirit will raise us and to life imperishable and we will just have resurrection. One of the things that the spirit does in us is he brings out the fruit of love and love has a very particular shape in the New Testament. And the shape, it will not surprise you to learn, is the shape of the gospel. It is a cruciform shape. And what I want to do for the rest of this talk is just explore what love means in all its different aspects, if it's shaped and when it's shaped by the gospel. So gospel-shaped love. Let's have a look at that. One of the things that I hadn't realized till Michael Gorman pointed it out is that St. Paul never talks about Christ's love without speaking of it in terms of the cross. He only ever speaks of the love of Christ by talking about the cross, because the cross enters into the very meaning and heart of what it is that Christ loves us. That's what his love looks like. And not just the love of Christ, but the love of God the Father too. Um, in 1 John chapter 4, I love that passage that says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is what love is. It's what it looks like. It has a shape. And the shape it has is the shape of the gospel. And what a cross-shaped love looks like um, is what the second point says. The cross models love as voluntary, sacrificial, status-renouncing, self-giving, for the sake of others. It builds others up. It doesn't insist on its own way. It renounces its own status and rights for the sakes of others. This is what the story of the cross shows us what love is like. This has a negative and it has a positive aspect. The negative side of that is that love doesn't seek its own advantage its own edification. It's not out for itself. What it's out for is the good, the advantage, the edification of others. That's what cruciform love looks like. So let's return to the passage in Philippians, which we're looking at today, because 
here, when Paul spells out this gospel story, he does it in terms, for, precisely for the reason of explaining how it is that these believers should be behaving amongst each other. This is why he's telling the gospel story as a pattern for them. So look at how he introduces it. I'll read it again. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. So you see, the only reason he's telling us that gospel story in this context is precisely to say, this is the pattern for how you should be living. So what I want to do then is look at how that pattern works out, because it works out in a million, million different ways, uh, depending on the situation that we're dealing with or the context in which we're in. But if we can start to get our imaginations going and seeing the different, how the pattern can work out in different ways, then we can start to use our own imaginations, whoops-a-daisy, and uh, see what that might mean in our particular contexts. So we start with the example of giving and what crucified love looks like in terms of giving. Now, Paul, in three or four of his letters, is very concerned about raising money among his congregations for the church in Jerusalem for the relief of the saints there. We're not exactly sure what it was they needed relief for. There's various suggestions, but that's by the by. And so what he's, he's trying to induce is a loving response of, of, of giving, financial giving to the church. Notice then in 2 Corinthians 8 to 9, which is one of those passages where he's talking about this, he gives a theological foundation for why they should be giving and the pattern that their giving should take. And it is, surprise, surprise, the gospel. Um, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So here we see the gospel pattern, but Paul is telling it in terms of, uh, in language that connects with the issue of giving. And then he tries to um, inspire them, the church in Corinth, through the example of how the churches in Macedonia, Greece, have been giving. And this is what he says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance and joy, sorry, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. <laughs> So, so Paul is saying, what these churches in Macedonia are doing is, is gospel-shaped giving, gospel-shaped living. It's cruciformity as it applies to giving. It is preaching the gospel in the way that they live. It's living the gospel, as it were. Let's think about it in love. What does cruciform love look like in terms of ministry, any kind of Christian ministry? Well, Jesus already told us, you know, well, he told his disciples, and I assume he had us in mind as well. <laughs> uh, ministry is not about lording it over people. It's not about, hey, look at me, everybody bow down to me, aren't I amazing? It's not about giving status and value and position to the person who is the minister or the leader. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you've got to be a servant of all. So ministry 
is about servanthood, and ordination is not ordination to be the head honcho and super-duper wonder person. Uh, ordination is ordination to be the least, the servant, the one whose job is to help enable the church to be the church. Lost my place in my notes there. Uh, yes, okay, could he go? <laughs> okay. So, Paul then, just to give one example of what this might look like, Paul Paul says lots and lots, especially in 2 Corinthians, about what cruciform ministry looks like. But I want to look at something in 1 Corinthians. Um, He says, look, I'm an apostle, and as an apostle I have various rights. Um, Rights to support, financial support, to help me to, to minister to you. But in this particular case, he says, you guys, you can't afford that. And I understand that. And so I happily, he says, um, set aside my rights to demand any financial money from you. I voluntarily set them aside. And what I will do is support myself by working as a tent maker um, to support my ministry. Now, a tent maker was a very lowly status job. It was like cleaning the loos or that kind of thing. Uh, And so what Paul is doing is he's setting aside his rights and he is renouncing his status for the sake of others to enable them because they couldn't afford to pay for him otherwise and and his ministry. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ because in doing this, he is imitating Christ. He is living that pattern of setting aside his own rights and status for the sake and blessing and benefit of others. And he endures suffering for the sake of the church, he says. 2 Corinthians, um, where Paul talks about ministry, he's absolutely scathing about people who use ministry as a means of promoting themselves and lifting up their status and all of that kind of stuff. Super apostles, he calls them. Uh, He says, this is not what gospel ministry is because the pattern of ministry that is is embodied in what they are is not the gospel. His pattern of ministry is one of suffering for the sake of the church and serving the church and so on. Okay, let's think about another issue. How we handle issues that we disagree about, issues at which the gospel itself is not at stake, but issues that still might be important. They might be theological issues, they might not be theological issues, but how do we handle disagreement? Well, we handle it with a gospel shape. It's not simply about making things work, it's about living the gospel, okay? so. Paul says in Romans 14, in the context of disagreements between believers, the attitude should be one of loving grace, like that shown by Jesus. And in chapter 15, he says this, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ didn't please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So what he's saying is, look, we're not, you know, we make allowances for one another. We are gracious. We, we set aside our right to be right about everything. And uh, we embody the gospel. We live the gospel. We preach the gospel in the way that we disagree with one another in grace. What about eating? Eating is important. Obviously, it's important or we die. But it's socially important. It's a very relational thing. And the gospel affects the way we eat. Um, In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, you know, you have a right to eat anything, but sometimes some of the things you eat might cause offense to other people. 
And when, in that situation, you shouldn't exercise your right. You should set it aside so as not to cause their conscience um, anguish. And it might seem trivial, but it's not. It's living the gospel. It's seeking the good of the other. It's maybe it's not drinking alcohol if there's an alcoholic around or something. It's simple, but it's preaching the gospel. It's simple, but it's living the gospel. What about spiritual gifts? As I said, we are charismatics. And let's just think here, not just about spiritual gifts like the, the crazy super duper stuff like speaking in tongues and healing and prophecy, but any kind of gift or, or strength that God has given us. Well, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14 is all about this issue. And what's very interesting, if you read it, is that what runs through those chapters is Paul's absolute concern that spiritual gifts should be exercised in the community in a way that manifests that story, the gospel story, the one we're just talking about, the smiley face. So he says, although, he says, although many of you have spiritual gifts, don't use them to promote yourselves above others. So because people were using speaking in tongues to go, hey, aren't I cool, look what I can do. Or, you know, using their gifts to promote themselves and to put themselves up above others. And Paul says, this is not the Holy Spirit that's doing this. The Holy Spirit um, incarnates the gospel in people. That's not the gospel. You should use your gifts to manifest the gospel by seeking the good and blessing one another. It's for the good of the other. That's what dominates it. In chapter 13, which is the one we hear at weddings, love is patient, love is kind, that comes in the context of how spiritual gifts should be exercised. That's the whole point he's talking about that. He's talking about love to say that's how spiritual gifts should be exercised. It's patient, it's kind, you know, it's, it, it's for the good of the other. And it's the gospel. It's preaching the gospel. It's living the gospel, even in the way we use our own gifts. What about marriage? What does cruciformity look like in marriage? Just say something briefly about this, because it's easy to read Ephesians 5, which we'll look at in a sec, in the context of our own culture, which is very different from the one Paul's writing in. In the culture in which Paul is writing, again, as I've already said, Roman society was very concerned with status uh, and honor and power and so on. And in a marriage relationship, it was very clear who had the status and the honor and the power. That was the husband, not the wife. And so Paul is saying, you Christian guys, you need to rethink this in terms of the gospel. And so this is what he says. And, and when you read it in that social context, it's really surprisingly revolutionary. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Whoever loves his wife loves himself. So this is what Roman marriage looks like when it's reconfigured around the story of the gospel. Instead of husbands seeking to preserve and defend their own power and status and rights, they are surrendering them for the good of and the blessing of and benefit of their wives. Um, how that gospel shape might work out in today's cultural context would look like that but maybe somewhat different because the dynamics are somewhat different. All of which is to say, I hope this sort of basic idea is fairly clear by now. In um, England, we have this thing called Blackpool Rock. 
It's a long stick of, it's like a tube of candy. It's, it's disgusting. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it's a tube of candy, and it's got the word Blackpool uh, that runs right through the middle of it. So everywhere, anywhere you snap the candy in half, it's got the word Blackpool written like a curving around the, the tube. So what I want to say is that Paul's view of the Christian life is simply this. Wherever you break the Christian life, it's got the story of the gospel running through it. It should have. That's what would make it a Christian way of doing things, is that it's got the gospel running through it. So we are called to proclaim the gospel story in the very shape of our lives. And that will look very different in different circumstances, but the pattern is the same. It's the pattern that was set by Jesus. It's the pattern of voluntary, sacrificial, status-renouncing, self-giving for the other. It is the exact opposite of trying to desperately hold on to your own power and influence. The call then to us is simply to live the gospel. And it's a challenge. It's always a challenge because we always, we do, we all fall short. Every week we fall short. You know, you look back at, you look back at your day and you think, oh shoot, that was hardly, <laughs> what I did there was hardly that, what I've been talking about. But even here there is grace. The gospel is about grace. God doesn't make us aware of our failures so that he can squash us. I always feel encouraged when God shows me stuff I've done wrong because I think, hey, that's brilliant. God wants me to get better. He wants me to change. He wants to transform me. So I'm really pleased that God's shown me where I've gone wrong. I'm really pleased that I can see where I haven't been living the gospel because the Holy Spirit can help change me. And that's a good thing. There is always grace. And that itself is living the gospel. Living the gospel is being transformed and recognizing our failures and weaknesses and letting God change us. So don't be disheartened if you feel you've failed. Cool. God can change us. We are baptized and the Holy Spirit lives in us. Of course the danger is sometimes we preach one message with our mouths and a different one with our lives. So there's two stories we're telling. We're saying one story and our lives are saying another story. And people aren't stupid, they can see that. It's hypocrisy. And it's horrible, it's really ugly when you see that. And we've all seen it, and we've probably seen it in ourselves, but we certainly see it. Folk who preach all stuff about God's love, but you think, do you really believe that? I mean, look at the way you're living. You're not living as if you mean that. You're not living as if you think people should be treated with respect and love and care and kindness. So we're telling a different story in the way that we live. The challenge of the gospel is to tell the same story with our lives that we speak. But there is grace, and there is always forgiveness, and there's always an invitation to pick up and move forward. So, in conclusion, we are called to be people and communities who live by a different story who tell a different story, who preach a different story, a beautiful story, a gospel story, with our lives. And through baptism, that story becomes the story that defines who we are. It is our very identity. We are gospel people. That is what we are as a church, what we're supposed to be, gospel people. 
Through Holy Communion, we come to continually be challenged and reshaped in our identity around this story. And in a million, million, trillion different ways, we can proclaim this story day by day in our extraordinary, ordinary lives. So I end with the words of St. Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel always, if necessary, Use words. Amen. So this is, this is the story. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. And in the same way, he took the cup saying, this is the covenant in my blood. This is his story, and now it's your story. This is the logos, uh, the plot, the mind of God. Let this be your mind in Jesus' name. So we invite you to tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. The white cups are juice, the brown cups are wine. They're both the love of God and the logic of God poured out for you. Amen. God, we thank you for the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God that you are, and that even when the entire creation seemed to turn against you and oppose you in every possible way, you would not stop being who you are, but you would love us um, uh, to, to the end because you are the end. And so, God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your decision, your choice in Jesus to be who you are, and we pray that you would be who you are even in us, your body. It's in your name, Lord God, in Jesus' name that we thank you and call upon you, Holy Spirit, to live in us. Amen. Hey, that was a little bit awkward at the end of uh, Robin's sermon, huh? When I came up here to do communion, you were standing here, and I did communion, and I, I squeezed Robin's elbow. And, and what that means is, in American, it means thanks. That was an awesome sermon, and uh, now we're going to have communion. And everybody wanted to clap, but they weren't sure, do we clap right now before communion or not? And we want to clap, but we want to clap for, for God, even though we're thankful for God through Robin. So now it would be appropriate to clap for Robin and say, thank you for your, for your message. It's a... It's so great of you, Robin, to have you uh, come and be a part of us. So we're just uh, genuinely grateful. If you'd like prayer uh, at the end, after the service, which, which is now, so if you'd like prayer now, uh, members of the prayer team would be down front here and they would love to uh, pray with you. Uh, next week we'll be back in Revelation chapter 20, which is this amazing chapter, so I hope you, you read through it uh, before, before you come. By way of benediction, let this mind uh, be in you. Have this mind among yourselves. And now you do. 
you ingested the logos, the reason, the choice of God. Now may it be manifest in your life. Believe the gospel and live the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.